The Bible reading this evening is Exodus chapter 13, starting at verse 17, and going through chapter 14 to the end. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was the shortest. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leave, leaving Succoth, they camped at Esham, on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi Ahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering round the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi Hahiroth, opposite Baal Zephon. As, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving, and the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Thank you, Anne, and thank you, for, uh, thank you, Nathan, for leading us so far as well. Let's just get myself slightly organized here. There we are. Now then. I have a uh, PowerPoint which will hopefully work, yes, there we are. So to all of us, I expect, this is a very familiar story. And uh, those of us who were brought up to go to Sunday school have probably heard it many times. It's also been portrayed in film multiple times over the years. And in fact, I found a, uh, um, a video on YouTube that used this particular story as a case study 
to show the progress that has been made in special effects over the years. Um, it's surprising, maybe it's not surprising, how many times it's been done. The first time was in 1923 by Cecil B. DeMille in the first version of the Ten Commandments. I didn't even know that there had been a first version of that in 1923. The one I know is the one made in 1956 with a starring Charles Heston, but also produced by Cecil B. DeMille. Then in 1974, there was a, uh, uh, a film called Moses the Lawgiver, where Moses was played by Bert Lancaster. And then in 1995, a mini-series uh, where uh, Moses was played by Ben Kingsley, and that was the first one where the crossing of the Red Sea was done using CGI, computer-generated imagery. Many of us are familiar with the uh, animated Disney film, Moses, Prince of Egypt, that was in 1998. And then, I'm afraid this passed me by completely, but apparently it was done again in 2014 by Ridley Scott in a film called Exodus. And in each of these successive films, the crossing of the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea has been done with increasing sophistication every time. And we're familiar with it. Most people out in the big wide world, even outside of Christian circles, will be familiar with this story. And whenever we approach a story in the Bible that's familiar to us, the temptation is just to rush over it and to risk taking no more from it than we did when we first heard it, whether in Sunday school or wherever. So it's good that we're encountering this passage today as part of a series, as part of a wider series on God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. So really we're forced to look at it carefully and to see what we can learn from it. So let's dig in and see what we can find. Now the first point to make is that it wasn't actually obvious that they needed to cross the Red Sea at all. Let's see if this will work. How have I got this switched on? Mm, I always struggle with this, let's try that. Ah, there we go, yes. So going through the Red Sea wasn't the obvious thing to do. If you merely glance at a map of the area, then you can uh, immediately see that it's perfectly possible to get from uh, where they started. Uh, we don't know exactly where, um, where they were living before they crossed, but it was probably around this area, we think, probably. And they had to get over there, ultimately, to the Promised Land, the land of Canaan. And it's obvious at a glance that it's entirely unnecessary to cross any sea in order to accomplish that. Well, okay, you have to cross the Suez Canal nowadays, but that wasn't there at the time. From, from a strictly geographical point of view, it's entirely unnecessary um, to cross any sea. You just cross, the you just cross the Mediterranean coast, starting at the Nile Delta, to what we nowadays call the Gaza Strip, and you enter there. And if we look back through before Exodus and into Genesis, for example, if we go back to Genesis 12, when we first hear of Abraham going to Egypt to escape famine, or indeed if we look in Genesis 37, where Joseph is taken to Egypt by an Ishmaelite camel train, having been kidnapped and sold by his brothers, or indeed lots of other times in Genesis when you read about people going back and forth between Canaan and Egypt, there's not one occasion when there's the slightest hint of them needing to travel over any body of water, let alone cross a sea, to get there. And yet the very beginning of our passage this evening that, uh, um, that Anne read for us um, in, verse, uh, in verse 17, it tells us that God did not 
lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. Now, the Philistine country was this area there, the area which, was, uh, in the, which, which nowadays we call the Gaza Strip, and in those days was inhabited by the Philistines. Now, um, God went on to say, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. And so it says, God led the people around by the desert road south towards the Red Sea. Now, it was always the case that the Israelites were going to need to fight battles on their way to the promised land. Whatever might happen along the way, they were clearly going to have to displace the people who already lived in Canaan. And the rest of verse 18 suggests that they were prepared for this. Um, the NIV translation, which we had this evening, says that the Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. That's perhaps a bit of an exaggeration, another translations put it differently. Um, the King James Version says the children of Israel went up harnessed. Um, the New King James Version says the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks. And Young's literal translation, it says here, has it, by fifties have the sons of Israel gone up. But in any case, we know from later history that yes, they had to fight the Canaanites on entering the land, and they had to fight various other people on the way up. But of all the nations who dwelled in the land of Canaan at the time, the Philistines were the ones who were going to prove to be the hardest to dislodge. Saul and David, centuries later, were still fighting against them. And they were still there when the Jews were exiled into Babylon. The last we hear of them is in the book of the prophet Zechariah. And as we know, even today, what used to be the Philistine territory isn't all contained within the state of Israel. The Palestinian enclave of the Gaza Strip corresponds to part of what would at that time have been Philistine territory. So we can understand that God mercifully kept the Philistines till last rather than leading the Israelites straight out of Egypt in order to face them within weeks of having been slaves there. 1 Corinthians 10 is a chapter that we're going to come back to later on because it looks back to this passage. But in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we find some words which many of us have found precious. It says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond that you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. In other words, God doesn't push us further than he knows we can be pushed. God doesn't give us more to deal with than he equips us to deal with. And so it proves to be here. Uh, we can boldly say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. And that's true. But there are cases in history. Um, in the church history lectures I gave years ago, I told the story about a guy called uh, Quintus in uh, um, second century Ephesus. I won't go over the whole details of that now. But yes, there are people who have overestimated what they can do. They've put their faith in God, but even so, they've um, pushed themselves beyond where God was leading them to go and come unstuck as a result. And we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't push ourselves beyond what God leads us into. He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are but dust, says Psalm 103, verse 14. And so, for that reason, it says here, rather than keeping to the coast road, the people turned south towards the Red Sea. The passage just 
interjects at this point. It meant that it needs to mention it. I don't think there's any significance in the, the fact that in the fact it mentions it just here. That they had with them the bones of Joseph, thus fulfilling the promise that Joseph's brothers had made to him at the very end of the book of Genesis, that they would take his bones back to the promised land with them when they went. Okay. So the, where was it then that the people went instead, and where exactly did they cross the sea? The honest answer is that we've got absolutely no idea. The place names that are mentioned in verse 20 of chapter 13 onwards, that, uh, that Anne read very well, Succoth, Etham, Pihahiroth, Migdol, and Baal-Zephon, these are lost to history. Um, in all likelihood, they were never settlements or towns, but maybe desert oases which can shift over time, or possibly just geographical features which um, it can be difficult to recognize unless you know what you're looking for. And there have been many volumes written speculating about this. As a topic, it's absolutely and utterly fascinating, and it's completely beside the point. To spend, to spend too much time on it would be like getting sucked into the endless genealogies that Paul warns Timothy about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, which promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work. Let's just say that there isn't a body of water anywhere in the region whether different parts is my yeah yeah there we are whether different branches of the red of the Red Sea itself whether places along the Mediterranean coast whether these lakes here there isn't a body of water anywhere in the region that some scholar wishing to make a name for himself hasn't speculated about at some point in the last few hundred years. There's even a joke about all of this, which was funny the first time I've heard it. Many of you will have heard it 20 times, so I'm not going to tell it now. If you don't know what I'm talking about, come and get me afterwards and I will tell it to you then. But anyway, if you, if you want me to tell you the joke later on, find me. And if you want to know where I think they crossed, find me. But the point is, it, nobody knows for sure. It's not important. It's not something which people should argue over. The only thing that matters for now is that they crossed. But anyway, moving on for now. Let's see if that will work. There we go. There we go. So following God can sometimes lead us into what look like dead ends. This was the people's experience here, because as we move into chapter 14, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahiroth between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. Do you see that? The way it's written, it's quite clear that the route over which God was leading the Israelites was specifically calculated to deceive Pharaoh to make Pharaoh think that they were wandering around in confusion. So one thing is, should we worry about the idea of God intentionally deceiving someone? Now, we know of course that God is the only source of truth, and when one seeks him with a sincere heart, he won't withhold the truth from them. He promises that. Um, there are many scriptures that say exactly that. Um, Matthew 7, 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Uh, James, James chapter 1, verse 17, tells us every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation 
or shifting shadow. Or indeed, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. And yet, elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible makes it perfectly clear that where people set themselves up against God and refuse to seek Him, then deceiving them is one of the judgments which He lays upon them. Psalm 18, verse 26 says this, To the pure you show yourself pure, but to the devious you show yourself shrewd. Shrewd is the word that the NIV uses to translate that verse, but actually in the old RSV, the Revised Standard Version, it says this, With the pure thou dost show thyself pure, but with the crooked thou dost show thyself perverse. Um, remarkable to find such a description given. But anyway, it's not only there. Um, to, look up an, to, to, to look another reference, there's uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, uh, 11 and 12, where Paul says, for this reason, God sends them, he's talking about people who, are, um, who have set themselves up against God, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe of the lie, so that all will be condemned who, will not, who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. So the Bible does seem to make this absolutely clear that where people have set themselves against God, where people are determined that they're not going to seek God, but to oppose them, to, to oppose him, then misleading them, deceiving them, is one of the judgments that God sets over them. And either way, Pharaoh, in this case, was deceived. Having let the people go, and despite everything that had immediately preceded this, the plagues, the death of his own firstborn, as Nathan preached to us about last week, he immediately had the tyrant's equivalence of uh, buyer's remorse and changed his mind. He heard of the route that the Israelites were taking and saw his chance and set off in pursuit. Now at this point, we're in, um, well by now we're in uh, Exodus chapter 14 and verse 8. We can still read that the people of Israel were going out boldly in the, uh, in the NIV, defiantly it says here in the ESV that I have here. But that changed very quickly. The people saw Pharaoh's army coming after them, and they immediately fell for the same deception that Pharaoh was under. So God knew which way he wanted the Israelites to go. He knew why he wanted them to go that way, and that was the way that he was leading them. He had told them to go that way because he intended to mislead Pharaoh into thinking that they were trapped. The problem was the people themselves started thinking that they were trapped as well. They fell into the same deception that was intended for Pharaoh. And for the first time then, we hear what became an, infrequent, uh, an increasingly frequent refrain as the story of the Exodus goes on, not only through the book of Exodus, through the subsequent books as well. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out of the up to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians rather than to die in the desert. <clears throat> this is a good time to talk about cartoon vegetables for a bit. Um, many of you who had young children in the 90s, this passed me by, but it's a world I discovered about 10 years later, will have come across the Veggie Tales series of um, animated Bible stories told through the medium of, well, cartoon vegetables. Only they weren't actually cartoons. Um, 
I briefly mentioned at the beginning when we were going through the way in which the um, parting of the Red Sea has been portrayed in film over the, uh, over the years, I mentioned CGI, computer-generated imagery. And VeggieTales, which was released in December 1993, was in fact the very first show of any sort, as far as I've been able to find out, to be produced entirely using CGI, two years before Pixar released the first CGI film, Toy Story. So never let it be said that Christians are behind the curve when it comes to keeping up with and exploiting the very newest technologies. Anyway, VeggieTales launched in December 1993. It went from strength to strength. Over 10 years, they sold millions of videos, made tens of millions of dollars of revenue, and they seemed to carry on growing and growing and sweep everything, including the secular media, before it. Until, almost suddenly, in 2003, as a result of what in retrospect were overambitious expansion plans, but also a concatenation of circumstances which you could probably best summarize speaking in human terms as bad luck, the company went bankrupt, and all of a sudden it was all over. And it was almost as though they had come sweeping out of nowhere. They had stormed across the desert. They were well on their way to the promised land when suddenly, dump, there they were, up against an impassable obstacle, and trapped. And the, the chap called Phil Vischer, the, um, um, the founder of VeggieTales, the creative mind behind it all, wrote a book about it. He called it Me, Myself and Bob, Bob being the animated tomato who was there at the very beginning of the process. And he published it three years later in 2006. And speaking personally as somebody who's been through the whole roller coaster of starting a business and seeing it go to the wall myself, I found that book more helpful than anything, anything else I've read on the topic. And what Vischer does is not only to document his own experiences, how all of that was going on, but to tell the story of other believers, both in the Bible and in more contemporary history, who've experienced something similar. They've, been, they've seemed to be on an unstoppable path to achieving everything that they expect to achieve, only to be brought up short against some obstacle or other when they've least expected it. Um, some of the examples he gave included um, Abraham. Abraham was childless. He was promised a son. He had the son, Isaac. Isaac was growing, and then all of a sudden God says, take your son, take the son of promise, take him to Moriah, sacrifice him there. Another example from the scriptures, the, uh, the Shunammite woman, uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, you may remember this, this, the story of Elisha. This is the lady who every time Elisha was passing through her village, um, she would give him somewhere to stay. Um, uh, eventually, she built a uh, hut for him to stay on the roof of her house whenever he was passing through. Um, in Vicious account for it, he says that wasn't as big an insult to the visiting preacher as you might think in those days. Um, Elisha asks her, what do you want? And she says, well, I don't have a son. So Elisha prays, and she has a son. A few years later, the son dies in her arms. Yes, Elisha raises him from the dead again, but nevertheless, she was in that situation. She was up against the barrier. Vischer also tells of a pastor friend of his in Vancouver who, back in um, uh, 2001, was doing an evangelistic outreach. It was going incredibly well. The church was growing. They even thought that they were at the beginning of a genuine revival. And then 9-11 happened, the Twin Towers in New York, Everybody's attention was diverted and it just ended. Everybody went away, it dispersed, 
nothing else happened, that was that. But was there ever a more graphic example of people's hopes suddenly being dashed than the week leading up to the cross? Jesus entered Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week to the cheers of thousands of people who thought that he was about to raise an army, expel the Romans, and restore the Lion of David on the throne of Judah. A week later, those hopes were dashed, and Jesus was dying on the cross. Was Satan deceived then? Did he believe that he had Jesus trapped and defeated, just as Pharaoh thought that he'd trapped the Israelites? We need to be careful here, because the Bible doesn't say that in so many words. We know that Satan knew who Jesus was, but did he know that Jesus was going to rise again? Well, there are plenty of people whose minds are dark places into which I wouldn't want to venture. I won't name any, but I'd certainly hesitate to venture into Satan's mind. The important thing is, though, that we ourselves as Christians mustn't be deceived by the deceptions which are meant to mislead the world around us. Describing the end times in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus warns us, false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But unlike the Israelites in this passage, we mustn't be deceived ourselves, but we must trust that God is faithful to his word and knows what he is doing. Well, that was certainly the case here. There we are. Now, the rest of the story, in some ways, tells itself. We all know it. Pharaoh thought he had the people cornered. The people of Israel thought that Pharaoh had the people of Israel cornered. No one was expecting what happened next. The sea opened. The people passed through. Pharaoh's army attempted to follow them. The whole army was drowned. We read that not one of Pharaoh's army survived. But the people were saved, far safer than they would have been if they hadn't gone through the sea and Pharaoh's army hadn't been drowned. Now, I promised earlier that we'd revisit 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This might be a good time if you uh, want to uh, turn to it, to turn to it. We were looking before at verse, um, oh dear, I can't remember what verse it was. Was it verse 13 before? Yes, verse 13 before. But the relevant verses now are verses 1 and 2, because this is where Paul, writing 1 Corinthians, looks back at the events recounted in our passage today and interprets them for us and tells us what, in his view, they mean for the, for, for the Christian church. He said, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, our Jewish ancestors, in the, for, the, for those in the church who were Jews, were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's significant that baptism is the thing that Paul, writing here, chooses to compare, to, chooses to compare this with, and timely, I suppose, as we've heard just this evening about Lucy Berry being baptized next week, which is wonderful news. There's an obvious parallel in that water is involved with this, but there's also a very definite sense of initiation. They hadn't reached the promised land yet, but there was definitely no going back for them now. The people were baptized into Moses as they crossed the Red Sea in the sense that from this point, there was no turning back. Where Moses led them, where Moses was going, 
they were going with them. Like baptism, of course, there is also in this passage a picture of death and resurrection. The waters of the Red Sea were death to the Egyptians, and yet for the Israelites there was life on the other side of them. And yet despite this picture, as I said, this wasn't the end of their journey with Moses, it was the beginning of it. And through that journey, they were going to be sustained by the manna sent from heaven. And as we read in verses 3 and 4, they all ate the same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. And they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. And as the passage goes on, as 1 Corinthians 10 goes on, Paul is going to compare that to the Lord's Supper. So again, it's entirely appropriate that we should be here on an evening when we're about to take communion straight after our next hymn. Beyond that, I'll go no further for now because I don't want to tread on Peter Turnbull's uh, toes and steal his thunder when he comes to preach on the following passage the next Sunday evening. But I can't resist going a bit further in the story. Further still, beyond Exodus, beyond Leviticus, beyond Numbers, beyond Deuteronomy, all the way into Joshua chapter 3. Because in Joshua chapter 3, we're going to find that this isn't the only time that the people of Israel pass dry shod through a body of water as the waters themselves pile up alongside them. In Joshua 3, the same happens again, as finally after 40 years of wandering through the wilderness, quite unnecessarily, it didn't have to be 40 years, but that's another story. There, they are ready to cross through the Jordan and into the Promised Land. Spectacular as the crossing of the Red Sea was, there is a sense in which that was only a picture and a foretaste of what was going to come. And that is also true of these elements which are before us here. We'll partake of them after our next hymn. I'll hand it back over to Nathan now. Thank you. <laughs> 